Good morning. It is a privilege to be able to bring God's word to you this morning. And we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3, focusing especially on the first seven verses, verses 1 through 7. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I just want to remind you that information is a powerful thing. And false information is a dangerous thing. Thing. Many throughout history have recognized the power of deception and they've used it to their advantage. Perhaps some of the most infamous examples can be seen in the case of the Soviet Union's so-called active measures. And these active measures included disinformation, forgeries, attempts to overthrow governments, assassinations, etc., And some of the most widespread campaigns involved creating and planting stories in newspapers of third world countries that were aimed at hurting the United States and other Western countries. Perhaps the most infamous of these campaigns occurred in the 1980s, and it involved planting fake stories in newspapers of third world countries that said that the AIDS virus was a biological weapon created by the U.S. military. Publications in over 80 countries disseminated these stories in over 30 languages. And what was the result? Uh, Well, widespread distrust between third world countries and the U.S. And in 1992, a shocking 15% of Americans believed that AIDS was probably or definitely created deliberately in a government laboratory. And that's even though the same year the former head of the KGB admitted that they had created the stories and planted them in newspapers. So it's not hard to see the huge impact that false information can have. In the hands of an enemy, false information can do truly irreparable harm. And it might not feel like it sometimes, but every single one of us in this room today is at war with a real active enemy. And this morning we'll see in Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 7 that we have an enemy who actively twists God's word and tempts us to betray our king. So we'll read the whole chapter to understand the context of this famous passage. So we'll read the whole chapter, Genesis chapter 3, and if you're able, please stand to honor the reading of God's word. So we'll read Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. God's word says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we just sang, we are those who were once your enemies who have been made your friends by the blood of Jesus. We thank you for that glorious truth that we can come before you and hear from your word this morning because of the blood of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds, give us humble hearts to receive your truth this morning. And I ask, Lord, that you would be with me as I preach your word, that I might teach only your truth. We pray that you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Notice this text is primarily historical. Moses, who is the author of this text under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is first and foremost telling us how sin came into the world. It's answering questions like, uh, why is there sin in the world? Why is the world the way it is today? Why is there disease, suffering, and unfathomable evil? What went wrong? Was it always this way? Yet there's more to this than just the historical reality of the fall and sin coming into the world. It's also teaching us about the very real enemy who tempted Adam and Eve and attacks us still today. 
And since we're under attack, we followers of Jesus must stand firm by faith against the attacks of Satan. So this morning we'll see three things that we need to understand in order to stand firm in our walk of faith. In order to stand firm against the attacks of Satan, first, we'll see that we need to understand our enemy's nature. We need to understand our enemy's nature. We'll see that in the first half of verse 1. The passage begins by telling us that our enemy is crafty. In this passage, we're immediately given a description of a new character who has appeared on the scene. Remember the flow of the first three chapters of Genesis. In the first chapter, we have the account of God creating the heavens and the earth. That is, everything. He creates everything out of nothing and calls it good. The pinnacle of his creation is the human beings created in his image, whom he calls very good. Then, in the second chapter, we have a detailed description of God's creation of Adam, his command to him, and the creation of Eve. As we begin the third chapter, we're introduced to someone new. Suddenly, we see the serpent, a serpent who is described as crafty. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that the serpent was really good with a hot glue gun and making homemade jewelry. No, it's not that kind of crafty. He's tipping us off that the serpent may not be trustworthy. The same word is used elsewhere in Scripture to describe the enemies of God. Moses, the author, is telling us that we need to pay careful attention to what this serpent is going to say because it may not be what it seems. Indeed, our enemy is in the business of deception. Paul says that Satan deceived Eve by his cunning. And Jesus calls him the father of lies. Part of knowing our enemy is knowing his capabilities. If he were not crafty, cunning, and clever, there would be no real danger, would there? He's good at what he does and has been doing it for a very long time. So don't be misled by the depictions of Satan in popular culture as a silly red man with a pitchfork. That is not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that he is a clever, cunning liar seeking to devour. Yet, our enemy is still a mere creature. Look at the first verse and notice what it says. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The enemy is crafty, indeed craftier than any other creature, but... He's still a creature. He is not omnipotent, that is, all-powerful. He is not omniscient, that is, all-knowing. And he is not omnipresent, that is, present everywhere. He is not an equal match for God. The Bible clearly does not teach that God is locked in a battle with Satan and just barely eking out a victory. Have you seen those posts on Facebook where it's a picture of Jesus and Satan locked in an arm wrestling battle and it says you have to like or share to make Jesus win? That is the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Okay, But in this, we have to avoid two extremes. We have to be careful of thinking that Satan is just a literary figure created by people less advanced than we are today. But we have to be equally careful of thinking that Jesus is under every rock. 
Have you ever seen people who, when their car doesn't start, they say, ah, oh, it must be Satan. Or there's mic feedback, ah, oh, it must be Satan. Or you go to Chick-fil-A and they run out of chicken sandwiches and you say, oh, that must be Satan. That one might actually be Satan. But uh, we can't be thinking that anything and everything in our lives is because of Satan. So don't underestimate his ability to deceive, but don't overestimate his power either. You can overcome him, but you will only overcome him by the power of Jesus Christ, the one who has overcome the world. You might be wondering, why should I care? Why should I understand this enemy? Because knowing your enemy is important. Long before any of the more recent controversy, former, now former, Patriots quarterback Tom Brady was famous for obsessively studying films of opposing teams. Tom Brady and coach Bill Belichick would study their opponents so closely that Tom Brady could almost get inside of their heads. At times, Brady wouldn't even practice because he knew the tendency of his opposing team so well. Now, we shouldn't devote tons of time to studying Satan like Brady studied his opponents. But when we know his schemes and his methods, we can be like Brady and seeing a blitz coming before it happens. Yet still, we do not rely on our own preparation or strength. The wiles of our enemy show that we need a more powerful one to rely on. Thus far, we've seen that we need to understand our enemy's nature and next, we'll see in the second half of verse 1 through verse 5 that in order to stand firm against the attacks of Satan, we need to understand our enemy's schemes. We need to understand our enemy's schemes. Now we begin to see how the serpent interacts with the first couple. Look at the second half of verse 1. The serpent speaks directly to Eve and says, Did God actually say... Now, these words are never the beginning of something good. If you hear someone saying, did God really say you should be on your guard? Notice that when Satan repeats the command, he's actually subtly twisting God's word. He's reframing the command. The original command given by God in Genesis 2 was positive and generous. Turn with me, if you will, just back one page in your Bibles to Genesis 2. We'll just read verses 16 and 17. We'll see here the original command that God gave Adam. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. It says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Can you notice how Satan subtly changed that command? The original command is generous. God first said that they could eat of any tree, then mentioned the one tree that they could not eat from. Satan twists the command to highlight its negative aspect. See, Satan here is trying to make God look restrictive, as if God is holding something back from them. Have you ever seen this strategy of the enemy in your own life? Maybe you have viewed God's commands as if they were holding you back from living a fun, uh, full life. The reality is that God gives his commands to protect us and to lead to our flourishing. 
Living a life contrary to God's will leads only to pain and misery here on earth and ultimately eternal suffering in hell. Do you view it as a horrible, life-crushing burden to obey red lights? I certainly hope not, because if you make a habit of running red lights, you are certainly going to suffer pain and misery sooner or later. God's law is no different. He gives us commands and ordinances to protect us. Just like running red lights, disobeying God's law certainly leads to destruction. So don't believe the enemy's lies that God is out to get you and wants you to live the least enjoyable life possible. No, God cares for you and has given you these commands, these precepts and principles so that you may bear much fruit and live a holy life that glorifies him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because that is where true joy is to be found. Not in the pursuits of the world, but in, in glorifying God through joyful, spirit-enabled obedience. Look back at the text and notice what happens in verses 2 and 3. After Satan twisted God's word, it leads to the woman also misrepresenting God's command. Notice that just as Satan changed God's command, the woman changes the command in verse 3. She adds another restriction to the command, saying they cannot even touch the fruit. Then in verse 4, we now see Satan directly attack God's word. Our enemy's method of attack is not an immediate, out-in-the-open, full-frontal assault. Rather, Satan begins by subtly twisting God's word before outright denying it, as he does here. First twist, then deny. This is the slippery slope of unbelief that happens so often in churches and denominations and seminaries and even our own lives. It begins by twisting or questioning one seemingly small aspect of Scripture. But before you know it, that questioning or twisting has led to an outright denial of key doctrines like the deity of Christ, miracles, the virgin birth, the resurrection, and so on. In our lives, the enemy does the same thing. He'll begin by leading us to question or rephrase parts of God's word that don't seem all that critical. Did God really say that you can't look at that on the computer? Did God really say you have to love people even when you disagree with them? Did God really say that you can't live with a woman who's not your wife if you really love her? It begins by questioning certain parts, but quickly becomes rejecting all of God's word. You give an inch, but the enemy will take a mile. Now look in verse 5. Notice how the enemy begins to question God's motives and character. He says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's Satan doing here? Well, he's trying to get Adam and Eve to think that God was holding back the fruit so that God could protect his own position. The enemy was trying to get Adam and Eve to believe that God was scared of them becoming like God. In reality, God doesn't need to protect his position. There are no contenders for his throne. Furthermore, God is not like a child 
trying to selfishly keep all the other kids off the playground. In fact, God had condescended to speak to and interact with Adam and Eve. God was not aloof seeking to protect his position. No, he came down and spoke with them. Many years later, God humbled himself to the point of actually becoming a flesh and blood human being and dying the most humiliating death possible on a cross. Does this sound like a God who is selfishly trying to protect his position? The enemy was also leading them to believe that God was trying to hold back knowledge from them. Yet the reality is that searching for knowledge outside of God is futile. Proverbs 9 verse 10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Colossians tells us that, all treasure, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God wasn't trying to keep them from knowledge. He was trying to keep them holy. It might surprise you, but some people are saying the same things that the serpent said today. In fact, many people don't view the serpent in our passage as a bad guy. Richard Coleman, who's a professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary, wrote this. He wrote, quote, Adam and Eve do nothing wrong when they listen to the snake and disobey God by eating the fruit, since God's command to them was an attempt to keep them in their place, to keep them basically the same as animals, but clearly distinct from God, thereby preserving God's special status, unquote. In other words, what he's saying here is that the serpent was right. God was only trying to protect his status. This author, Richard Coleman, then says that eating the fruit was actually a good thing, as it led to creativity, as they made clothes to cover themselves, and they experienced a wider range of emotions. He goes so far to say that even the murder of Cain in the following chapter was only condemned by God because it's part of a, quote, recurrent theme of the early parts of Genesis that God wants to keep human beings from becoming like him, unquote. Brothers and sisters, God is not a jealous child who fears someone taking his place. And the fall was certainly not a good thing. God was seeking to protect Adam and Eve, not preserve his position. God withholds nothing good from us. But rather, all of his commands are given to lead to our flourishing, to allow us to live the kind of life that we were designed to live. You will hear many people today continuing to claim the same things the serpent claimed in the garden. But do not be like Adam and Eve who entertained and even embraced these lies. So we've seen that we need to understand our enemy's nature and our enemy's schemes. We also need to understand the, understand the ends that our enemy is working toward, which is why we now turn to our third point. Third, we'll see in verses 6 to 7 that in order to stand firm against the attacks of Satan, we need to understand our enemy's goals. We need to understand our enemy's goals. Our enemy had distinct goals in mind when he tempted Adam and Eve. They're the same goals he has when he attempts to lead you astray today. Our enemy wants first to undermine God's rule. Look at verse 6. Notice how it says, 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, what's happening here? Is Eve just making an observation about how the fruit is suitable to eat? No, it's actually so much more than that. Remember the account of God's creation of the world just a few chapters earlier in Genesis 1. There we see God creating everything. After every act of creation, what does the scripture say? Listen to the first instance in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it to you. The scriptures say this. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. After every creative act, the scripture tells us that God sees it and declares it good. Now in Genesis 3, we're told of someone seeing creation and declaring it good, but it's not God. No, it's Eve who is taking the role of God in declaring what is good. By ignoring God's command and declaring good what God had previously declared forbidden, Eve is undermining the rule and reign of God. Not only that, verse 6 tells us that Adam and Eve were undermining God's place by acquiring wisdom for themselves. The text tells us that Eve saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Of course, we know that this is not really true. This is the lie of the enemy that Eve had bought hook, line, and sinker. As we said before, trying to acquire wisdom outside of God's revelation, outside of God's will, is hopeless. Yet they try to do just that. And what wisdom do they gain? Nothing but shame, fear, and a broken relationship with God. And this leads us to the second goal of the enemy, which is that he wants to separate us from God. This ultimately is the final goal of our enemy. Human beings were created to have a relationship with God. We were all created to know, to worship, and glorify the one who created and sustains us. Here we see the beginning of the most painful separation imaginable, the separation between God and man. The separation began with the eyes of Adam and Eve being opened. Earlier in our text, Satan had told them that their eyes would be opened, and indeed that's exactly what happened. But what was the result? Their eyes were opened only to their nakedness, to their sinfulness and shame. In the verses that follow our passage today, we see the results of this separation between God and humanity in great detail. The man and woman attempt to hide themselves from God's presence. They're confronted in their sin and judgment is proclaimed. God curses the serpent, the woman, and the man. He says that the woman will experience pain in childbirth and will have a strained, tainted relationship with her husband. Adam is then told that the ground will be cursed because of his sin, that his work will become painful and difficult for the rest of his life. The sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, was not restricted to them. No, sin never is. It always affects others. Just look at the world around us. We see the results of this curse every day. And if you doubted that at all, 2020 should have shattered your romantic picture of the world. Just in this half a year alone, we've seen massive, devastating wildfires in Australia. 
we saw and are still seeing a global pandemic and its economic fallout. We've seen racial tensions in our country boil over into countless protests and even riots. And let's not even get started on murder hornets and all this other stuff. It's just crazy. If you step back and look at this year, can you honestly doubt the presence and power of sin and the curse? Surely not. Not only that, we see the curse of separation with God in our own lives on a daily basis. Some of you listening to this today may very well still be living separated from God. The curse is not merely the temporal effects of sin that we see in the world around us today. Even more sobering is the eternal effects of sin. Brothers and sisters, people around us who are living separated from God now will live eternally separated from God in hell. We certainly don't like to think about it, but every person in this room knows someone who, if they were to die today, would live eternally separated from God under his wrath. That reality should make even the past year so far, which has been far from ideal, pale in comparison. I want to paint the stark reality of the dark picture of this curse. I want you to realize just how ugly, just how tragic it is. Why? Because there's also hope here. Even in the midst of the darkness of this terrifying curse, we see a bright light. In the middle of these curses, we see a powerful, a glorious promise. Look back at verse 15 with me. Verse 15 is in a part of what God said to the serpent. He said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Amidst the darkness, we see the promise of one to come. The seed of the woman who will finally and fully defeat the enemy. So what does this mean for us? It means that our enemy, Satan, will ultimately fail in his goals. Remember earlier that I pointed out this is not an even battle between God and Satan with God just barely coming out on top. No, this passage shows us that the defeat was already set in stone from the beginning. The plan to send a savior was not plan B that God scrambled to come up with. It was the firm plan of God from the very beginning. This passage teaches us that Adam and Eve failed and brought sin and the curse into the world. Yet, it doesn't end with them. We too fail every day. No matter how well you understand the enemy's schemes and his methods, you will fail sooner or later. You will always succumb to the enemy's attacks. This is precisely why we are called to look to the one who won't fail, the perfect promised Savior of verse 15, to God made flesh, the God-man Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, from this point forward, is constantly looking for the promised one who would crush the serpent. Yet every person, every prophet, every priest, every king, fails to be that promised one. So the entire Old Testament is looking forward, it's pointing forward to the perfect rescuer to come. We saw earlier how false information can be a very dangerous thing in the hands of an enemy. 
In the same way, information can be a powerful tool for good. Look, for example, at the Battle of Midway in World War II, which some of you history buffs may be familiar with. At the time, the Japanese Navy was incredibly powerful. It dominated the entire Pacific region. They had decimated the United States Naval forces at Pearl Harbor, further strengthening their position in the region. It was not looking good for America at the time. The Japanese Navy was planning to set a trap in Midway and deal a decisive blow to the US. But what should have been a total defeat for the US Navy became the turning point for the Pacific campaign. The Japanese forces didn't know, but the US had broken the Japanese code language they used to communicate with each other. The US had been able to intercept their communications, decode them, and figure out where they were headed. The US cleverly then lured them into a trap by sending fake communications that said the US ships had run out of fresh water. The Japanese Navy fell right into the hands of the US forces who had the element of surprise on their side. The result was that Japan lost four out of six of their aircraft carriers, most of their trained pilots, and hundreds of aircraft in a single blow. On that day, a little information became the key to a massive victory. That single battle changed the tide of the Pacific Campaign and maybe all of World War II. In the same way, we see a little information in this chapter, namely the promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that is the key to a massive victory. We know that our greatest enemy will be utterly and totally defeated. Just like the U.S. in the Pacific in World War II, we are outmatched and outgunned on our own. But we know that our enemy's days are numbered. Amidst the darkness of the fall of Adam and Eve in this chapter, we see a glorious promise of a second Adam, the offspring of the woman who would not fail as we have. We see a powerful promise of one who would completely and finally crush the serpent under his feet. And just as information has turned the tides of battles in the past, this promise turns the tide of our battles today. We don't rely on our own power to face our enemy. Indeed, we can't. If we do, we are bound to ultimately and totally be defeated, no matter how well we understand our enemy's nature and his schemes. We must look to Jesus Christ, the only one who never failed, the one who defeats our enemy and brings us out of our sin and shame back into the presence of the perfectly holy God we have been separated from. In this passage this morning, we've seen a lot about our enemy. But there's a critical question you have to ask yourself. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know the only one who has perfectly resisted Satan, who ultimately defeated him on the cross of Calvary? Have you put your full trust in the one who suffered and died for the sin that separates you from God, then left his empty tomb three days later? Have you recognized the many ways that you have fallen just like Adam and Eve, confessed that utter rebellion to the Lord, and trusted in his perfect provision of his son in your place? I do not want you to walk away this morning 
thinking that you can resist Satan in your own strength if you just work at it hard enough. No, you will always fail sooner or later. But this shouldn't drive you to despair. It should drive you to the perfect Savior who alone resisted the evil one. Why don't you trust in him today? Let's pray to this glorious Savior as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do not have to face the enemy on our own. We know that we are outgunned and outnumbered, but we do not need to rely on our own strength. We thank you that you have provided the one to rescue us from our sin, to pay the price for our sin, and to bring us back into your presence. We confess, Lord, that every day we fall short of your perfect standard. So we thank you for sending this promised Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has crushed the serpent through his death and resurrection so that we might be brought back into fellowship with you through trusting in him. For those here today who have not yet trusted in this perfect promised Savior, Lord, I ask that you would use your word this morning to convict them, to draw them to yourself. For those of us who have already trusted in this Savior, Lord, give us a new joy, a new appreciation for him today. Because, Lord, we know that every day we are under assault. But if we rely on the one who has overcome the world, we can overcome our enemy. We thank you for this word and ask that you would help us to respond in repentance and faith where needed and in joy and rejoicing where needed. Be with us now as we turn to worship you in song. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, well, let's stand together.